Good morning. Thank you so much, Casey. Uh, yeah, we're continuing today uh, our series, Human. It's kind of the unofficial close to the series, and next week for Easter, we'll be officially closing this out with what it means to be a new kind of human. Uh, so over the last three weeks, we've been looking at what it means to be human from a biblical standpoint and worldview. So to be human, we've learned, is to be made in the image of God to image God, to show him to the world, to reflect him, to be his representative figure on the earth, to be his vice regent over his creation in which man would have dominion over. We've talked about how to be human is to be loved, cared for, and wanted by God. Because of those things, to be human is to be eternal forever. Jesus said that when the dead are resurrected, some will be resurrected to judgment and some to life. So everyone lives forever. It just matters where you are going to spend eternity, with Christ or apart from Christ. We talked about how to be human is to be male or female. Important because we discussed and discovered that men and women are equal in value and worth before God yet they are different and men and women together in community more fully reflect the image of God as God intends. To be human is to be good, uh, very good, in fact. When God created all things, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, but then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So when God creates both man and woman, he declares his creation is very good. So despite the bad environment and world that we currently live in, God created us to be good, and all men are capable of doing and creating good things, and though we are stained by sin, we can still do good, and that good can ultimately be redeemed in Jesus Christ. And the next week, we talked about how to be human is to be in relationship that you can't really know yourself unless you're known by someone else or you know someone else. That the way we are intended to live is in relationship and in community with other people. And then finally, last week, we discussed that to be human is to work. That we were created to work. That we've been created with purposes and visions of things to accomplish and ultimately, to be human is to find fulfillment in the work that God has us to do. And we discussed how we will be working, serving, doing fulfilling work uh, with God for eternity. And so today we're going to be looking at the one thing that it means to be human, that it's not supposed to mean to be human. That, that we are and we're experiencing right now something as it was not intended to be. And so we wrap up kind of this overarching idea of what it means to be human with a look at to be human is to be stained by sin. We've talked about this a couple times already. To be human is to be, uh, quote unquote, a sinner. And so just as we've been doing throughout this series, we're looking at Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 and the creation of mankind um, to get a picture of what it is for us to be human. And so let's go today to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and is good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And so when God puts man in this garden to work it and to keep it, to guard and to serve it, to fill the earth and to subdue it, he places within that garden two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, says, The Lord God commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you do eat it, you shall surely die. So what are these trees? What is this tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, the tree of life, it stood in the garden to confirm mankind's standing and relationship before God. If someone was in good standing before God, walking in his ways, walking according to his will, uh, walking in his image, if you will, they would remain in God's presence where the tree of life stood. And they would continue an everlasting, fulfilling life in relationship with God. But if someone's relationship with God was broken, they would be removed from God's presence where the tree of life stood. And as God told Adam, they would experience death. He said, you will die. And the only thing in the garden that stands between mankind and the tree of life is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this tree um, doesn't represent one standing before God. What it actually represents is a moral experience. Because to eat of the fruit of this tree, the only thing that God forbid would give the one who ate of it a moral experience of either submission to God or rebellion against God. And so this tree uh, of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it, it wasn't magic, but it represents a choice. It represents moral experience. It represents rebellion or submission. And when you look at this idea of love, Love requires a choice. If God creates mankind and forces us to love him, forces us to be loved by him, having no opportunity to rebel against him or to submit to him, it would not be love at all. Love and relationship require um, give and take. It requires sacrifice. It, it requires choices. And so true love requires a choice. And so God gives us, gives Adam, gives Eve a choice. So what would they choose? Would they submit to God and not eat of the fruit? Or would they rebel and eat of the fruit? And so if they would choose to submit to God, they would then choose to reflect his image. They would choose to abide in his love, his care, and his desire for them. They would choose to live forever. They would choose to see how God created them as male and female, they would choose to live out his pure intended state of being good. If they were to continue to submit to God, they would be in proper relationship with him and with each other, and they would find fulfillment in the work that God created them to do. But if they rebelled against God and ate of this fruit, they would be forfeiting these very things. They would be forfeiting a pure image of God. They would be forfeiting pure relationship. They would be forfeiting joyful, fulfilling work. 
And so in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the devil. We don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of the devil. Um, but let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, the devil said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the devil approaches Eve, the woman, said, did God really say you can't eat any fruit? Now he twists the word of God. And the woman said to the serpent, this is how the devil is presenting himself as a serpent. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And so she says, actually, no, God said we can eat anything, but we can't eat this one thing. And if we eat this one thing, we shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know good and evil. So the devil is a liar. Jesus said he's been lying since the beginning, which we see here. And the devil twists the words of God. And the devil manipulates the words of God. And notice that the devil actually says to Eve, God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because God doesn't want you to be like him. But the irony in that statement is that they already are like God. They've already been made in the image of God in a way that the serpent has not. They've already been called to reflect and bear the image of God and to be in right standing with him in relationship with each other, to live forever, to find fulfillment in their work. They're already these things. They're made in the image of God. And the devil says, no, 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 no. God doesn't want you to be in his image. And you see, whenever we fall in life, it's because we are forgetting the things that God says about us. We forget who we are when we give in to the devil's temptations. And so verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she saw that it was delightful to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. As a side note, this is not a series on relationships, but oftentimes we state that the first person who sinned was actually the woman, was Eve, because she was deceived by the serpent and she gave in to the temptation to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But notice the words that are mentioned in verse number six. It said she gave some to her husband who was with her. You see, we often don't consider that Adam was with her the entire time all along. And Adam was given this position to watch over and to serve and to protect his wife. Um, to be, in a biblical standpoint, the head of his household. And here he fails to protect his wife. He fails to protect the image of God within them. He fails to protect the garden that he has been given responsibility to guard. And he fails to protect his very marriage. And so I would propose to you that it was Adam who sins first. And some of the things we'll look at throughout the rest of the sermon show that very thing. And so the devil 
convinces Adam and Eve that they are missing out. By submitting to God, you guys are missing out. You're missing out on all the fun. You're missing out on really being like God. The devil convinces them that God's image for them was not the best image for them. That they should choose another image. You guys need to conform yourself into my image, essentially, the devil is saying. You guys need to conform yourself into your own image. Be your own you. Don't be who God created you to be. And so he convinces them that if they want to really, really be like God, they need to rebel against God. And so they agree. They will rebel against God. And in their decision to rebel against God, you see, they think that when they take this fruit to eat of it, they think that they're actually taking authority away from God and are going to keep it for themselves. But that's not what happens at all. What actually happens is that they take the authority away from God because remember, love requires a choice. Thinking that they now possess authority over their own lives and can make a better image for themselves than God can, they actually are handing authority over to the devil. And the devil here is represented as a serpent. And so when they take authority away from God, they hand it over to the devil and they find themselves actually in bondage. Imagine, if you will, a serpent coiled around their wrists and holding them captive to their own rebellion. You see, every time we veer away from God's image for us, when we try to make a new image for ourselves, contrary to his ways and his design, we end up in bondage. And we suffer from the consequences of our sins. So go with me now to Genesis 3, verse 7. We find Adam and Eve after they partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It says, then the eyes of them were both opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, God warned them that the day that they even touched this fruit, that they would die. They were previously, just several verses before, they were naked with no shame. And here they are covering their nakedness with shame. They began that day to experience death. You might say, uh, they didn't die on that day. Well, they actually did. They started to die uh, to their relationship with God. They started to die in their soul. They started to die physically. Uh, shame, you see, is really a symptom of death and death a symptom of shame. They were created to be very good, and this was not good at all. This situation that they found themselves in was, in fact, very bad. And for it, for this decision, they would suffer from the punishment, the consequences of sin. And we too, for this decision, would and are suffering from the consequences of our sin. And so go with me quickly. Uh, we'll look at the four consequences, the four punishments, you will, of our sin. The first punishment, the first consequence for sin that Adam and Eve experience, that we experience, is losing direct 
relationship with God, losing fellowship with God. Adam and Eve would eventually be kicked out of the presence of God. They would be removed from proximity to the tree of life. They would be kicked out of the garden in Eden. They would lose the direct fellowship with God. Psalms 5, 4 says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. It's not that us being in the presence of God would somehow be like kryptonite to God or, or disable God or vanquish God. It's the other way around. If we are in the presence of the righteousness and holiness of God as sinners, we find ourselves destroyed. Speaking of being destroyed, the second consequence of Adam and Eve's sin that we too experience is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The only thing we earn from our rebellion toward God is death. And so we look at this last year of a pandemic. We look at diseases that people suffer from. Uh, we look at mass shootings like happened this last week. We look at war and, and murder and genocide. And we ask, why do these things happen? They happen because of sin, because the wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. Our bodies physically and literally die. Number three, a consequence for sin is losing fellowship with each other. Adam and Eve were supposed to be naked with no shame, and instead they cover themselves up with shame, and they immediately start blaming one another. And then their children would kill one another, and we would find ourselves in this mess where we would be actually not just separated from God, but separated from people made in the image of God and separated from the rest of creation. And then the fourth and worst consequence, punishment, if you will, for sin, is to experience eternal life apart from God in hell. Now, hell is a, a touchy subject, but I want you to know that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Why would he do that? Is it because he wants to uh, preach fire and brimstone to us and scare us? No, it's because he desires to have relationship with us. It's not God's desire that any would perish. It's God's desire that all would come to repentance, that all would be saved. And so Jesus talks about hell because he doesn't want anyone to go there. Jesus says in Matthew 13, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and they will separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the consequences for our sin, loss of fellowship with God, death, loss of fellowship with one another and the rest of creation, and then finally, hell. And so because of these things, because of mankind's original sin, because of these consequences, uh, number one, all men are born with a sin nature. Because of sin, everyone has a sin nature. Number two, because of sin, everyone sins continuously. And number three, because of sin, everyone suffers the consequences of sin. Now going over those again real quick, um, to look back at this idea that because of Adam's sin, everyone now has a sin nature, you might say that's not fair. Well, Psalms 51, David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. David tells us, scripture tells us, as David writes this, as the spirit leads him, that we are born with a sin nature. Romans 3 says, it's written, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so when we look and we would say, well, that's not fair. Why would I inherit a sin nature because of someone's decisions tens of thousands of years ago? Well, just as Adam is created as a representative of God to the world, so too is Adam a representative of us. He's like a senator or a congressman, if you will. He does what the people do on behalf of them and vice versa. And so he represents us, and so his sin represents our sin. And to think that we would have done differently, if I was Adam, if I was Eve, I would not have sinned. Well, that's prideful. That's arrogant, and that itself is sin. And so we all have a sin nature because we all choose willingly to rebel against God. As I said before, because of this, we don't just have a sin nature, but we actually sin. Now, you might say, well, um, I haven't, you know, murdered anyone before. I've never robbed a bank. I've never done some horrendous thing before. I haven't done anything horrible. But the reality is, is that anything that falls short of God's glory, anything that's done outside of the will of God, anything acting contrary to the image of God within you is sin. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 14 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so anything that we do outside of faith from God, it, it's sin. And so what this means is that we are all equally sinners. Even as Christians, though we're forgiven from our sins, even as Christians, though we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and even as Christians, though we are battling to put our sin to death, we still find ourselves in sin. We still find ourselves doing what we don't want to do. The Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian of all time, he says, why do I do the things I hate? And the things I hate are the things that I do. Now, there is hope for us. We, as Christians, can repent of our sin before God. We, as Christians, can walk according to the Spirit of God to put our sin to death and to resist temptation. And when we do rebel and sin as followers of Jesus, forgiven of our sins, we repent and we stand up and we keep following. But we all suffer from sin. Now, some sin has more dire consequences than others in this life and possibly even the one to come. But the bottom line is, is that we are all in need of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're all in need of God's grace. We're all in need of God's salvation from our sins. Because all of us, regardless of how bad our sins are, they're all bad, by the way, we all face the same four consequences. And that's what leads us to that third one I mentioned. Because of sin, because of original sin, because we have a sin nature and we sin, everyone suffers the consequence. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. 
So we all experience the consequences of Adam and we all, experiences, we all experience the consequences of our own sin. So we as humans are stained with sin. To be human is to be a sinner. And so due to this condition, due to original sin, due to our sin nature, due to its consequences, due to the fact that we sin, due to the fact of these consequences, and due to the fact that it's only against God that we have sinned, we cannot forgive ourselves. We've sinned against God, God only. David says, God, I've only sinned against you. And so we can't forgive ourselves when God's the only one who can forgive. We find that we can't save ourselves from our sin. We can't clean ourselves up from the stain of sin. We can't please God through our own works. We talked about that a bit the last couple of weeks, that we're called to do work for God, but our works will never clean us up or save us. We can't earn our own salvation. No amount of church attendance, no amount of tithing or offering, no amount of singing, no amount of prayers, no amount of missions trip, no amount of Bible reading or evangelism will ever earn our salvation. It can only be given by Christ. So Romans 8, 7 through 8. It says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now this might seem very discouraging, but here Paul is letting us know without divine intervention, without God rescuing us, we are stuck in our sin. In fact, we are dead in our sin. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, the sin nature we were born with, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The wages of sin is death. And a dead person is incapable of resurrecting themselves. The Spirit leads Paul to write these words just to show us how incapable we are of bringing ourselves life and rescuing ourselves from the wages of sin. So to be human is to be a sinner. To be human is to die. And every time we sin, and since the beginning of sin, we've been dying to relationship with God. We've been dying to the good we were called to. We've been dying to the image of God we were to bear. And we've been dying in our flesh. And because of these things, Paul says, we're children of wrath. We deserve the just punishment and wrath of God for our sin. And it's because we're dead in our sin. It's because we're following the devil instead of following the creator. And so where's hope? If, if to be human, we've talked this whole series, all these great things it means to be human. Yeah, we get to be in relationship. 
We get to be made in the image of God. We get to work. We get to be forever. This is great. And then all of a sudden we come down with a hammer of like, but to be human is to be a sinner. Stained with sin. Dead in sin. Here's the deal. Here's the story of the gospel. The image of God within us, our true humanity, our relationships, and our very life can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Reversing the consequences of our sin and freeing us from the bondage of sin that we find ourselves in. And so we just looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, but let's look briefly at Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. Paul said, hey, you're dead in your sin. You're a child of wrath. But in verse 4, he says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Remember, to be human is to be loved by God. Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace, you have been saved. Remember, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't work it out. It's only by grace, getting something you don't deserve, a free gift. It's by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up and seated us with Jesus in heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So through the life of Jesus, God's son, the perfect sinless life, Jesus lived the life Adam could not live. Jesus lived the life Eve did not live. And Jesus lived the life we cannot live. A life not of rebellion and handing authority to the devil but a life of submission to the Father and living under the authority of the Father. So through his life, through his death on the cross, and through his glorious resurrection from the grave, Jesus forgives us of our sin. To be human is to be stained by sin. But to be in Christ... A new kind of human is to be forgiven of sin. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Here Paul says, We have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. The stain of sin, ironically, is removed by the blood of Christ. The stain of sin washed away, made clean, forgiven, redeemed. Because Jesus laid down his life. Though we were dead in our sin, Jesus died for our sins. Though we deserve death, Jesus took on the wrath of God that we deserve. 
The perfect Son of God took on the sins of the entire world, 1 John says. And he received his Father's just, righteous wrath in our place so that we could become the righteousness of God. And we can have the image of God we were created with, redeemed within us. And we can be freed of sin and its consequences. Because when he frees us and forgives us, Scripture says God remembers the stain. He remembers the sin no more. Look at Psalms 103. I'm going to look briefly at three verses. Casey will come up and, and wrap up this time with a time of response and prayer and worship. But Psalms 103, verse 12. It says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. So through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, through Jesus dying in our place, cleansing us in his blood from our sin, it said God will remove our sin from us, remove the stain, remove the consequences, remove ultimately the sin nature, removes ultimately the continuous sinning, removes his wrath as far away as the east is from the west. It, it, it's not even comprehensible. He, he removes our sin permanently, forever. In the Old Testament book of Micah, the prophet writes in chapter 7, verse 19, it says, God will again have compassion on us. God will tread our iniquities under his feet. And then he refers to God as you. He says, you, God, will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. He removes the sin as far as the east is from the west. He cast our sin, as some say, in a sea of forgetfulness. He tramples our sin under his feet. And they sink into the depths of the sea. And then God grants to us redemption of our sin. He gives to us restored relationship with him. He gives to us the Holy Spirit, which we mentioned earlier, through the Holy Spirit, we can walk in his power to resist temptation. When he gives the Holy Spirit, we can repent of our sin when we do sin. When he gives the Holy Spirit, we can put to death our sin here in this life as we await the life to come. And God gives to us, gives us back, if you will, everlasting, true life apart from judgment. And God gives this as a gift of grace. And it's received in faith, trust in Jesus Christ. So to be human, it's to be stained with sin. It's to be a sinner. But humanity can be redeemed in Christ, who removes the stain of sin and makes us new. I'll read one verse as Casey comes up, but listen to this. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God can remove our stain of sin.